0: The following podcast is brought to you by The Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shugo, if you don't know me, and it's great to see you this morning uh, here in person. And where's the camera on? There we go. And online. Welcome. Um, So it's nice to be back on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's it's been a while for me. Um, Sunday morning was always my favorite time to practice, uh, but then for for like five years, I was working on Sundays or on on the weekends, so um, I haven't been able to come on Sunday mornings for a while. Um, and I was thinking about it. I remember that at five eight eight, my routine was like I'd come to the Zendo, and uh, you know you have the whole thing on Broadway. And then afterwards I would go and get a scone and a cup of coffee and sit in the Elizabeth Street garden and just kind of drink the city. in. And it always felt like the practice was the whole city and not just, you know, coming to the Zendo, but the whole thing. So it's really nice to be back on Sunday morning and um, I'll I'll be back more Sunday mornings though. So we just finished ongo. Um, and some of you know that, uh, Rakeshin and I had a show last weekend. So as a result, I wasn't able to participate in Shusa Hosen. but I think actually it worked out okay. Um, because this is the first talk that I've given since my Shusa Hosen um, this past fall. And actually it's, it's been a very interesting year for me because I was Shuso last fall, um. So I was engaged in our very deep practice that comes from the monastic tradition. And as you can imagine, that was a powerful and challenging uh, and very rich time for me. Um, And it, it pushed me to my spiritual limits in all of the best ways. Gave me a chance to learn and to grow and to serve. Uh, And then immediately after that finished, I got a new and exciting, but very demanding job. Um, And I was also composing music for the show. Um, So I moved very quickly into another period of intensive practice. But in contrast to the sort of monastic style, it was uh, a period of intense lay practice. Um, Work, money, laundry, who's cooking tonight. And as you know, we had this wonderful opportunity this past Congo to really look closely at lay practice and layman pong and many of the lay practitioners who have been so important uh, to our tradition. Um, so in a way it felt like the perfect transition for me. Um, so this morning I wanted to share some of what has come up for me in this sort of year of extended, intensive practice, both on the cushion and off of it. And as I was thinking about where to start with all of this, uh, I remembered a on that moved me very deeply. And I was reflecting on how it's funny that sort of, uh, there's this deep place where all of this stuff lives in us. And uh, when we sort of gaze into the waters and stir up the depths, powerful things emerge um, from that murky sedimental cloud. So what came up for me is um, Blue Cliff Record K 16, Jing Ching's Man in the Weeds. And uh, before the case is presented, there's a pointer, uh, which sort of primes us for wherever the con is going to take us. I was thinking about, it's like when you walk down the street and you go past a bakery and that smell overtakes you. And you, you can't, your eyes open wide, and kind of can't help but like peek in the window, to see what's there. So then by the time you actually get to the croissants. Your mouth is watering and you're ready to just dive right into it. You can see I like baked goods a lot. So the pointer says this, the way has no byroads. One who stands upon it is solitary and dangerous. The truth is not seeing and hearing. Words and thoughts are far from it. If you can penetrate through the forest of thorns and untie the the bonds of Buddhas and ancestors, you attain the land of inner peace, where gods have no way to offer flowers, where outsiders have no gate to spy through. Then you can work all day without ever working, talk all day without ever talking. Then you can unfold the device of breaking out and breaking in, and use the double-edged sword that kills and gives life with freedom and independence. So I'm just going to savor that smell for a moment. There's so many layers to it. It's juicy and delicious even before you take a bite. So the way has no byros. One who stands upon it is solitary and dangerous. What is it to be dangerous? What is that? The text says that one who stands upon the way is dangerous like a steep sheer mountain. Even the thought of trying to scale it could mean certain death. So why is that the case? So recently I've been reading Martin Luther King's Testament of Hope. He was dangerous. I was sitting on the bed the other, on our bed the other week, and I started reading his final Sunday morning sermon, which is entitled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. He talks about Rip Van Winkle, who slept through a revolution. And he cautions us not to sleep through the revolution, not to miss our lives, not to miss this precious opportunity that we have to build a world of love and dignity. When we stand upon the way, when we know who we really are, when we live as bodhisattvas with wisdom and compassion, we're dangerous, terrifying to behold, unapproachable. And not because we're too cool or lofty, but because our hearts become so big that they swallow the whole universe. Get too close to somebody like that and you might just get swallowed up. Or more dangerous still, your heart might swallow the whole universe. So the pointer draws us in with this delicious smell and then it tells us that the key to this dangerously big heart is in the koan. So let's take a look. Case 16, a monk asked Jing Cheng. A monk asked Jing Cheng, I am breaking out. I asked the teacher to break in. Jing Cheng said, can you live or not? The monk said, if I weren't alive, I'd be laughed at by people. Jing-ching said, you too are a man in the weeds. So what catches you about this exchange? For each of us, it's a little bit different. What grabs us? What draws us in? What comes up from the depths of our lives? how we feel ourselves in this exchange. So not uncharacteristically of the koans, there's this interesting sharp exchange with a little bit of humor. And then we're left with this sort of enigmatic statement. We know immediately that it got us in the gut, but what exactly is the result of this final statement? A little bit tricky to say. What does it mean? And more importantly, what does it have to do with my life? So jumping back to sort of the beginning of this whole year-long process, Roshi asked me if I would be Shuso. And after I said yes, and that kind of settled in, one of the first things that happened for me was that it initiated a process for me of inquiry into what my practice really is. And I think there's an ongoing cyclical process of asking what our practice really is. It's something that we have to do over and over. And I'm sure that it is a recurring question for many of us, for all of us. Uh, And given my nature, I can say that I definitely do think about that every day. But I felt that when Roshi asked me, it really kind of rekindled that fire and Spurred me to go very deep with that question. Because, in a way, it felt like it wasn't just me on the cushion anymore, but now there's this kind of responsibility to the Sangha and, by extension, the whole world to actually express the Dharma in a way that might be helpful for other people. Uh, And so, in order to do that, I felt I had to be very clear about what I was doing and why. That's just what came up for me. And it came up in different forms, but the big one was really about the specifics of my practice. Like, I know how Dogen tells us to sit. I know how the Pali Suttas tell us to sit. I know how Roshi has told me to sit. But what does that actually mean to me? Why do I sit that way? Just because that's how I've been told to do it? Just because that's how it's always been done? What do I actually feel from this posture, from this mudra, from chanting these chants, from bowing this particular way and doing kin and lighting a stick of incense? There's so many different practices and so many ways to practice. Why do I choose to do it this particular way? I felt I had to sort of re-answer all these questions for myself before I could say anything about them. And so in many ways, my time at Shuso felt like a deep dive into this practice that I had been doing for already for many years. I've swam in these waters many times, but what's really down there on the ocean floor right now? And I think that the Kullan addresses this in its own way. The pointer says, If you can penetrate through the forest of thorns and untie the bonds of Buddhas and ancestors, you attain the land of inner peace, where gods have no way to offer flowers, where outsiders have no gate to spy through. So I love this expression of untying the bonds of Buddhas and ancestors. We practice the way of Buddhas and ancestors, but ultimately where does that lead us? To untying those bonds, to letting go of the boat so that it can float downstream, to finding our own true expression of the Dharma, which is the only real expre- is the only real expression of the Dharma. Anything else that we hear or read can't really touch it, which is also why the pointer says that we are solitary, not that we're lonely, but that only we can find the practice that truly comes from our heart in its own unique way. No other practice can be like it. And so the pointer says that when we do that, only then will we we be able to unfold this device of breaking in and breaking out. So what's that about? So Jing Cheng was a successor of Shui Feng. And it's said that after he studied with him and understood his teaching, he used this device of breaking in and breaking out with all of his students, and that he did so in accordance with their potentialities. And it makes me think of Chu Ti and One Finger Chan, or many of the different teachers who had a particular device or a perspective that they used in their teaching. I think each of us has those unique experiences that shape us, shape who we are, and shape our practice. Those great challenges in our lives, those experiences are parts of ourselves that we would rather not think about, or those great triumphs or moments of great uplift and delight. These all shape us, shape our understanding of what it means to wake up in this lifetime. So Jing Ching says that foot travelers, people on the path, must have the simultaneous breaking in and breaking out I, and the simultaneous breaking in and breaking out function. I think this is the first teaching of this koan. If we practice wholeheartedly and devote ourselves to zazen, we can develop this I and this function to be able to meet the myriad forms of this world and manifest the relationship between form and emptiness, as does a mother hen when she meets a chick emerging from its egg. She knows exactly when a chick is ready to break through its shell. And by meeting it at just the appropriate time and in just the appropriate way, she facilitates that emergence, that coming to life. But in order to do that, she herself has to break in. She has to go inside of the shell. And so in order to have that I and that function, we have to be able to be both inside and outside the shell. So this is Jing Ching's teaching uh, on the simultaneous breaking in and breaking out being inside and outside of the shell at the same time. And going back to my time at Shuso, this is one of the things that we emphasize. The place where Koan study and Zazen meet is the active function of breaking in and breaking out. And then we end Ongo with the Shuso hosting ceremony as we did last weekend. And we have this opportunity to engage in a dialogue that tests us on this breaking in and breaking out, on wielding the double-edged sword that the Pointer talks about, the sword that gives and takes away life. And so right after my Shusa hosting ceremony, I accepted this, this new job that has a demanding schedule. And I also started working a lot on the composition for the show. So there were a number of resonances from my time as shusa that I could immediately feel. It was like, okay, so you've practiced answering koans. Now show me how you respond when a coworker says hurtful things to people in the office. You've learned how to officiate a service moving within the liturgical forms. Now show me how you move through a 70-hour work week. You've encountered yourself and quietly on the cushion. Now show me what that looks like when you're in the middle of a high-pressure environment and you're sweating profusely because you don't want to make a mistake in front of everyone. Or you're battling with that inner voice that tells you that your music isn't good enough. So there's a reason why we work with all these challenging parts of session and we don't turn away from them the pain that we feel, the desire to move away from the anger that comes up, the extraordinary tiredness, it's all there every day. But if we just turn on Netflix or allow ourselves to snap at someone because we're tired, we don't really deal with it, we don't engage it. But when we can allow ourselves to stay there for a minute, there's a transformation that can happen. And then our nature is revealed in the most unsuspecting of places. So, in many ways, I felt like being Shuso prepared me very well for starting a new job because the world is really our song. And our little song here is just a practicing ground for, this stuff, for everything that comes up in our wider lives. So the monk in the koan is a student of Jing ching And he knows that Jing Ching teaches people with this principle of breaking out and breaking in. And he's trying to show that he gets it. So he says, I'm breaking out. I ask the teacher to break in. Uh, I ask you to meet me there to validate my insight. And Jing-Ching immediately responds, can you live or not? For him, the moment that there's breaking out, he wants to know what you're going to do with it. And the monk says, if I weren't alive, I'd be laughed at by people. It's a great response. If our practice doesn't enable us to be alive and of service in this world, it's not really doing much, is it? Maybe it brings us peaceful feelings. Maybe sometimes we have drug-like highs, or it helps ease the pain that we feel in other arenas of our life. But we live in the world, and we have to interact with the world. So Jing Ching says, you're breaking out? Great, that's what happens when you sit wholeheartedly. But is your practice alive or dead? That's the real question. And the monk says, oh, I'm alive. If I wasn't, that would be pretty silly. And Jingqing says, you too are a man in the weeds. So what's he saying there? Is he criticizing the monk? We know that often in the Kalans, criticism and scorn are devices that are used to praise people. So maybe he's praising him. Another commentary on this koan says, Jing Ching breaks through this monk's view with his wicked skill. But even as he says this, Jing Ching himself is already another man in the weeds. Indeed, even the Buddhas of all times are in the weeds. The Zen masters throughout history are also in the weeds. However, there is a naughty complexity in the weeds. I love that. What is that naughty complexity? Do you have any naughty complexities in your life? Something that you're trying to work with. But when you really get down there to do some work with it, sometimes you get caught in it. I think that when we work with these koans, we really need to make them real for ourselves if we want to go all the way to the bottom of the well. It's easy to read the dialogue and just kind of think about how you can pass this column. But what about that feeling of the naughty complexity in our lives? If we're prepared to go there, we could spend our entire lifetimes on any one of these columns, just going all the way to the bottom with what it's pointing at for us. Just sitting there with the naughty complexity that is our precious human life, weeping at the pain, splitting our sides with laughter, the vast darkness, the piercing beauty of light, inner and outer landscapes of breathtaking scenery. In many ways, I think this is is the core teaching of this koan. So it's been a few years since I've started a new job, and there was also this little thing in there called COVID, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect from going in person to a full-time job. And when I started, immediately I could feel the ways that I've grown and matured, and also plenty of things that it highlighted for me to work on. It does that every day. But really one of the things that I've been thinking about most is the pain that people live with. More and more as the months and years of my life pass, I think our practice has connected me with the suffering of human life, the pain that people live with every day. We have this noble truth, life is suffering. But how do we really feel about it? how does that really come to life for us on a day-to-day basis? More and more, I see it all around. Um, I see my own suffering, the suffering of my friends and family. All about the same stuff, but in unique expressions. And how real it is for each of us, even though the same themes emerge over and over. And I also feel a growing love for everyone because we all have to live and work with it. We don't have a choice. Um, And then I also feel that as much as it can be so horrible and torturous, in a way, suffering is what makes life so beautiful and so worth living. That's another thing that has really come up for me in this year of practice. And to me, that's what the Buddha was saying. Practice connecting with your own suffering. Work with it. And you will see that it is what makes life beautiful. Samsara is nirvana. So what I feel in all of this, when I connect with Jing Ching's teaching, is that his ultimate point is to go beyond this idea of breaking in and out. Uh, That's what he's pointing to when he tells the monk who has answered very well that he's in the weeds. Yes, you get it. Well done, he's saying. And when we get it, where does that leave us? In the weeds because we hold on to something and we get stuck in the weeds of understanding, of separating from whatever our life is trying to teach us in this moment. But the weeds are also where we're meant to be. The weeds are where a bodhisattva spends their time right smack in the middle of our weedy, muddy lives in this weedy, muddy world. So yes, go into the weeds, waist deep, but don't get stuck there. When we're stuck, we can't serve. And it's a tall order being brave enough to voluntarily go into the weeds where it's gross and it stinks. But to hold on to ourselves, to our our presence of mind just enough so that we can make our way back out again. But that's what we're here to do. So for me, this year of shuso and lay practice, which I think really are the same thing, has been a lesson about going into the weeds. And when I can meet the suffering in myself and the suffering of others, I can have compassion, which means to suffer with. So freely sharing in the suffering of others, we can reveal the true beauty of this life And I'll end with Agatha. All around I see children playing. Some over here, some over there. Ghosts whose diamond tear drops on the pillow of a slumbering Buddha. Oh, to be a loving parent in this tender world.